I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Andy Pates of Cream Wine on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, Levy. How are you doing? Great to see you. So your buddy was a delivery driver. Yeah. At school, ISU, Illinois State University, friend of mine, roommate, was a delivery driver for Glunz. And Glunz is an old family distribution company. I mean, with basically ties all the way back to the Kennedys. It's a, it's a, a great family part of you know, Chicago's history. And he was a driver part-time. And he would come back to school with boxes, mixed cases of damaged labels. And it would turn out that these were Burgundy and Bordeaux and California wines. And in college, you know, I'm just trying to scrape together some money to get a 12 pack of old style. And what is this? Probably a beer, right? Exactly. I'm not from this neighborhood, so it's it's definitely a beer. Um, It's not a very good one, but if you've ever been to Wrigley Field or college downstate it's definitely the beer of choice and so i was exposed to wine in college it was never part of my life growing up it was never on the table and i discovered it late in life i was bit by the bug late in life and so you know mike stanton would come back from working for gluns with mixed cases of wine and he would divvy it up to the house that we lived in and so we were drinking Burgundy and Bordeaux and and California. And for me, it was like, wow, what is this? The light bulb just went off. I mean, we had one night we had a bottle of Ridge Montebello and the rest is history. I I fell in love with it. So what were you studying at the time? Political science. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. My father was an attorney and that's what I thought I wanted to do. So I basically just set up my major to, uh, you know, get into law school. Exactly. And so I was accepted to law school and was working at a law firm at the time. And I decided that that wasn't for me. I wanted to uh, be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start my own business. And at the time, wine was something that I was starting to fall in love with. And I thought, hey, this might be cool. I could get a job in sales. A lot of people that I talked to that I respected would say, if you want to start your own business, a really good start is to get into sales. So I got lucky. I I got a job with a, a startup mid-america which was owned and operated by dennis Stike, and he was a bit of a, a windy city legend for wine sales he was starting something new and interesting and i got in on the ground floor 
And once I started to sell wine to restaurants and sommeliers and retail, do the tastings, meet the winemakers coming in, it, I, I was just smitten. And I've been doing it ever since. What works as a sales guy? Well, I think being authentic, being real, sales is really easy. I mean, what I say to new people wanting to get into the business is that it's two things. It's showing up and following up. And that sounds really simple, but not everybody does it. Not everyone's down with it. I don't think they get it. I mean, it's it's about trust, establishing a relationship, which is based on trust. And from there, sales can happen. And so how would you go about doing that? Well, I'm a horrible salesperson and I'm a terrible closer, but I think I make up for it by being really enthusiastic about the company that I work for at the time and the products that I represent, the wines that I represent. And so telling the story, that enthusiasm, you know, I think it caught on with people and they responded to it. But there is a backside of that. There's organization and details. And, you know, that came later. I'm a fairly organized person. And, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I definitely put service at the forefront and, you know, not necessarily going to be able to compete with pricing or, you know, a 95 point wine that's 999 or the hot new trender package. But, you know, if they like you and they trust you and they believe in what you're doing, they're going to respond to it. And so that was really the basis of my success. So you were selling wine in Chicago in the 90s as a distributor. Exactly. I started in 92. What was that like? It was different. Uh, definitely different from how it is now. Uh, working at Mid-America, which is now called Vintage, and they were bought by Winebow. And I think Winebow has since merged with the country Vintner. So, you know, that's another chapter in consolidation. But at the time, Mid-America was mostly Domaine French and kind of Uber Napa. So I was selling Duckhorn, Frog's Leap, Silver Oak, but then also Gigal and Kermit Lynch's portfolio. So it was basically a French and California operation. But that's like holding aces in a way, yeah. like in that period of time. Yeah, it was pretty much the market. I mean, this is definitely, Chicago's a red wine town. It's definitely a domestic wine town. Our sales now for cream are about half domestic and 75% of that being California. So California really does drive the train, but there was and still is great opportunity for French wine. And it seemed like then Italy wasn't really being talked about. It was kind of an afterthought. And we definitely have seen over the years that change. And what was Dennis like to work with? He was great. I mean, he's really intense. Um, you know, he was my mentor, but he was a really, really intense a businessman, really sharp, you know, self-trained, self-made, very, very business savvy. But he was obsessed with winning and he was obsessed with building this company, the company that he had to great success. And he did it. I mean, kudos to him. He turned that into a great organization. A lot of great people worked there, went on to do other things, and he created a culture of success. And it was something that he would not tolerate anything other than the highest level of professionalism. So it was stressful, but it definitely helped me going forward, you know, learn how to run a business and to, you know, have somebody to talk to that has had practical business experience and was definitely was someone who, who would make time to talk to me about why things were happening and why they made these decisions. Were you selling spirits at that time? No, no spirits. Was that difficult in Chicago to just have a wine book? I don't think so. I mean, I think there were, I mean, there definitely were bigger liquor companies and a couple uh, smaller companies that had liquor portfolios. And then over the time, there was more and more consolidation. 
But there were dedicated fine wine companies, and there were a lot more um, sort of mid-sized companies than there are now. What's going on right now is there's two major liquor companies. There's probably a third place spirits and wine company, and then there's um, the largest wine company. And then you have four or five, let's just say big, small distributors or small, big distributors, and then a whole bunch of startups and you know, one or two people shows, brokers, minivan wine companies, et cetera. And where, where does Cream fit in that, that lineup? I would say that Cream is, I mean, I consider ourselves small, but, you know, in terms of the rest of the market, there's 150 wholesalers at least in the market. Then if you run a filter on it, okay, so you back out big liquor and you back out those that are not independent, and that are not family owned and operated and those that do not have their own temperature control warehouse and that are not based in the city, you're really looking at one company and that's cream. So I would say that we are probably the biggest small distributor or, um, you know, it's kind of a cliche, uh, big enough to matter, small enough to care to quote, uh, Beth and Rob from Roanoke in, in Virginia. But it's true. I mean, we have reached critical mass where we can write a wine list. We can stock a retail store. We have a global portfolio of top players. And so there is critical mass of being relevant in the market for somebody that wants to buy fine wine. And you met another of your partners at Cream today back at MidAmerican. I did. Mark Payne. He's uh, he's like a brother to me. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. He's my partner. And we're a perfect balance personality-wise philosophically he but at the time that he left he was my sales manager at mid-america we both started as sales reps and then he went on to do a family business and i went on to do some other things but we met there we struck up a friendship and later when we collaborated on partnering in cream you know we hadn't seen each other for a while but once we got back together it was a perfect fit and we made the decision to partner and to and to take cream to the next level because you went and did retail for a bit I did. Yeah, I, I had a great opportunity uh, to go work for Sam's Wines and Spirits, which is, I mean, I guess it's if you want to learn another segment of the industry, it's at the time, it was sort of like the Harvard of retail. And when was this? That was in 98. So before it was sold to the, the it, financial guys. Exactly. This is sort of the, the glory days of Sam's. This was right around the, the millennium. This is when they were the largest independent single retail store in the world. I had a great opportunity with the Rosen family and Bob Boffman, who was the general manager at the time. And um, so I left Mid-America on good terms. They since morphed into Vintage, but I left Vintage on good terms and went to learn the retail side. I definitely wanted to learn other segments of, of the industry. I mean, wine was my passion. It's definitely the career that I wanted to do. I didn't know whether or not it was going to be at the wholesale level, the import level, or the retail level, but I just wanted to go around and get a little bit more flavor and, and get more experience. What did you pick up from Bob? Bob is a shrewd businessman and buyer. I mean, he's also another one of these Windy City legends. And the thing I learned from Bob was dealing with people, definitely negotiating. I would see the way he would negotiate with suppliers. I would see the way he would um, negotiate with uh, people that worked in the company. And just, he had a vision that he wanted to make Sam's a global brand. And I definitely respected that. And they definitely had plans to expand. They wanted to go to New York. They wanted to become this chain. 
and say what you want. I mean, maybe that was part of their downfall where they, they sort of, you know, lost their way. And instead of having this one single store, they decided to become a chain. But he definitely was a hard worker, um, really, really sharp retail mind, could immediately look at something and know whether or not it was going to be successful, could immediately recognize somebody that worked there and know whether or not they're going to rise up through the organization. So as a manager and as a marketer and an entrepreneur, it was also a great learning experience for me. When he negotiated, what did that look and sound like? Well, well, it depends on who you talk to. A lot of the negotiations would take place in the back of the store in a smoke-filled room. So, you know, you could sort of imagine the movie, um, sort of old Chicago uh, politics or business. It was definitely happening. But he never really asked for anything that was over the limit. He never, in negotiations, he never asked for something that that wasn't reasonable. And so I think that's why they were successful. Was, as hard of a businessman as he was, big suppliers, small suppliers, medium-sized suppliers all liked working with him because if he committed to a number, he took the cases and the wine got sold. So he was basically... You know, he didn't invent the game, but he was definitely uh, one of the major players in the game. And he knew how to buy and sell wine based on the market conditions in Chicago. Because that was one of the few times that you weren't on the distribution side. It was a short time. I was there for a little over two years. So do you think that working uh, in the purchasing side, like kind of affected how you went back and worked as a distributor? Well, I think being exposed to so many wines, I mean, this was the largest selection of wine under one roof on the planet. And so working there for, you know, over two years, meeting all these people, all the winemakers that were visiting and having a chance to taste all the wines and also travel, would travel, you know, a couple times a year to Ven Expo and Ven Italy and just kind of open my eyes to, you know, rather than selling a, a small focus in, let's just say, niche portfolio, I mean, vintage was mostly California and and mostly French wine kind of opened my eyes to, you know, values from around the world or some of the top wines from around the world. And because that, you that, still sell Malbec today. Exactly, know? exactly. And we started working with Vine Connections portfolio at Cream in, you know, 2003, late 2002. And that's when Argentina was just starting to um, get noticed. And we definitely have had a great ride with that. Uh, it's been an amazing partnership with Wine Connections. And you know, we definitely have sold a lot of uh, their wines in the state of Illinois, for sure. So before you went and started Cream with Mr. Payne and, and Dennis, uh, you also did some e-commerce and marketing consulting. Exactly. It was, it was time for me to leave Sam's. I definitely wanted to start my own business. And I was helpful with them and, and was the project manager for their website. So their first e-commerce site, that was a great experience for me working with designers, working with content managers and putting together the project. And so that was a big success for them and became a huge part of their business. And so there was an opportunity for me to offer these services to other retail stores, marketing for restaurants, also um, building websites and content management for distributors. And so Vintage became a client, restaurants became clients, Sam's remained a, cl a client after I left. And so that was a great experience for me. It was, you know, my first real business, an opportunity for me to work for myself. Because it's 2000 and pretty much everybody in the wine game needs someone to do some tech stuff for them. Exactly. And it was really the infancy of, of I mean, what it is today, it seems like websites have sort of jumped you know cream has a great website and it's very labor intensive but we feel it's really really important and when we when we launched in 2001 
that was something that we placed a big importance on and it's really part of our identity. Since then, there's been uh, even your sponsor to come along 750, which has been great, I think, for smaller distributors that don't have the capital of the time for content management. That's been great. We view it as a plus. So with our website, along with 750, there's a lot of information that gets uh, disseminated to the customer and we think that's great. But at the time when I was working for myself, you know, it was you were trying to convince somebody to even have a website. Now it's like it's not even a question of whether or not you have a website. It's like, are you doing e-commerce? Are you doing database management? Are you going to do this plugin? How's your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, uh, WordPress pages? So it's totally changed. It's become faster, easier, cheaper. But back then it was uh, kind of a ground floor thing. What are some of the kind of takeaways for you in terms of developing social media and website? Well, I'm still trying to figure out how to monetize social media. I think everyone is. But as far as helping to promote visiting winemakers or a winemaker dinner or a tasting at a store or the launching of a new product, it's been invaluable. It's definitely a great way to sort of get your brand out there. Um, content on the webs on the website side, it's very, very labor intensive. And so having that experience putting together websites for sams and for vintage and for other distributors you know you can definitely spend a lot of money there's a lot of people that will you know line up to take your money but i don't i personally don't think a small distributor needs an e-commerce site i personally don't think a small distributor needs a content rich site but once you start to get into selling a lot of wines you definitely, especially if you're working with wineries that are small farmers and they don't have the content, it's really your responsibility to help promote them in the market. And so, you know, if you are going to have a website, don't have a website that has a four page about us section with a picture of the dog and everything. And then when you get to the product, it's a link to the winery's website. I mean, that's BS. You have to, if you're going to put yourself out there, you need to actually write the content and, and, and put your story along with the wines, no copy and paste. And that's, and that's basically a really labor intensive um, situation. We have a, a media manager, we have people that help write content and it's expensive, but you know, we get a lot of compliments on our website. It's, it's how we're known not only locally, but nationally and internationally. And so for me, it's worth it. So you decided to do cream and what were some of the key decisions besides website development that you wanted to put into place when you started it up? Well, the, the catalyst for cream was Dennis Stike called me and said, Hey, I have a, an idea for a new business and I want you to write the business plan. And I needed the work. I'm this working for myself. Boss, yeah. But living and, you know, just basically working out of my apartment and I needed the job. And so I said, okay, what's the premise? And he said, I'm staring at a Zinfandel that, the whole company just tasted blind and they agree it's better than, you know, all of the Zinfandels that we represent and I can't use it. And I said, well, why can't you use it? And he's like, Andy, I have 12 Zinfandels from Napa Valley. So the catalyst was there was an opportunity for a new complementary company, you know, where vintage was strong domain French and Napa. There's an opportunity for something totally different. You know, this, this, the business plan that I wrote threw myself into was what if it was a city-based company? What if it was a younger sales team? What if we were representing, um, at the time, wines and wineries that were of interest with younger sommeliers and younger retail buyers, Pacific Northwest, New Zealand, South America, specifically Argentina, Portugal, Austria. 
So, you know, I wrote the business plan, threw myself into it and, uh, you know, got paid obviously for my services. And and Dennis says, well, I want you to run the company. And I said, well, I don't want to be an employee. If you want to talk about a partnership, that's great. So we partnered and, uh, cream started in basically a month after, uh, 9-11. And so we definitely, um, started at the bottom especially with the reset and the consolidation that was going on. But we had a lot of success. There was a lot of interest in what we were doing. We were doing things a little differently. We had an office in the West Loop to Chicago. We created a hospitality center for people to come in and basically do tastings in the office. We didn't have the the, the corporate office out by the airport. We didn't have, you know, um, we, you know, we weren't wearing suits and ties. It was just something that was totally different. We brought the fun back into selling wine and cream became really successful very quickly to the point where it was starting to cannibalize, you know, the sales and the market share of vintage. And so we decided, you know, after some other consolidation that was going on in the market, Southern coming in and the Trilotta wine group, Paterno selling their company specific direct, et cetera. Uh, the idea was that, you know, I would buy Dennis out and he could focus on vintage and I could take cream in the direction that I wanted to take it. And that's when Mark and I partnered, we bought Dennis out and we've been independent since 2003. So when you say cream is city-based, you mean not just that there's a tasting room in the city, but that there's a different kind of taste to the consumer and to the book than you might find if you were dealing with some more of the outlying areas? Well, I always say to the team, Anyone that has a liquor license in the state of Illinois, I'll sell them some wine. But the nature of the portfolio tends to be more on-premise focused. And it tends to be more, you know, much to the chagrin of, of you know, some of the people in the marketplace uh, tends to be more on the esoteric. And where are those wines sold and promoted? They're sold on-premise. And where are a majority of the innovative and exciting restaurants, this, you know, natural extension, they're concentrated in the city. So having an office in the West Loop, being part of that community, um, which has become very, very vibrant over the past 10 years, we definitely became, you know, a neighbor to many of these accounts. And we would, you know, basically make the deliveries ourselves. If for any reason the truck was late, we would have the chef and the the sommelier over and we would do a private tasting, if, especially if there's a new company, a new restaurant that's opening up and there's all the jackhammers and the, and the hammering and the drywall and everything that's going on in the space. So why don't you come over to our space? It's quiet. You can unplug and let's taste, you know, 30 wines instead of the five wines that a rep can hold in their bag. And so, you know, that was really part of our success in the beginning is basically being part of that community that we're, we're servicing. And you had told me once that you had old world palettes, but that the groundwork of the company was kind of new world. That was really the foot in the door. I mean, at the time, you know, everyone had a French portfolio and everyone was, you know, doing the 1-800-allocate, dial and smile, cult lines. For us, it was like, what's going to make us different? And there were so many um, exciting things happening around the world. I saw it at Sam's for sure, where there were the next generation or the younger people were coming up. Quality was improving in countries that people were dismissing. So South America, there was a quality revolution going on. New Zealand and Australia, there was a quality revolution that was going on. And then Spain, while, you know, I certainly didn't invent the category of Spain, it, it, it was sold long before, you know, cream started, but that was something that, that we didn't do over at Vintage. And once we started selling Spanish and Portuguese wine, we were definitely set up because right before the, the crash or the correction in 2008, we had a portfolio that was bulletproof of top values from around the world. And when the cult wines and the collecting was down and consumption went up, everyone was 
scurrying to find value portfolios. Well, we already had the top importers and we already had, you know, the top direct relationships. And so our business actually grew post 2008 significantly because, you know, the, the rich collector was basically um, canceling his um, mailing list subscription to the second and third tier producers. The first tier producers are always going to sell, but the second and third tier producers, they were passing on their allocations and they were taking half of that money and they were going to retail stores and they were discovering great values from around the world. And that's really the direction that it was moving in. So we were all set up for that. In terms of wooing top importers, I mean, what does it take to woo top importers? Or is that even a call that you make? Do they come to you or what happens? You know, I usually don't make the call. I don't go on pirate missions or or go out to California in a suit with a spreadsheet. It's really, we've been fortunate where a lot of them have come to us where, you know, we have a reputation or they ask a customer who's doing good things or a partner, and then we would get the referrals. But you know, the portfolio that we have now, which I'm very proud of, um, certainly wasn't the portfolio when we started. And we definitely made some mistakes. And we definitely brought in things. I was too aggressive in certain categories. And we brought in other things. But What's a mistake look like? Well, I think a mistake uh, on the buying side, and I, I talk to colleagues that are starting small distributors, and I talk, you know, people ask me, um, you know, questions like if you had to do it all over and everything else. And I think that the, the, especially if you're, you know, not owned by a billion dollar corporation, um, the mistake that most people make is they grow too fast. And, you know, it's easy to be the buyer. It's a different thing to be the seller. And there's a lot of great wine around the world. And so we would bring in wines that we really, really liked that we thought would sell, but they weren't necessarily the top producer in the category. I mean, we had a great portfolio, but we would, hey, let's get into this particular category. Let's sell some German wines. Well, in hindsight, I should have waited for Rudy Beast. In hindsight, you know, we should have waited for, you know, this particular importer, rare wine company, instead of trying to go around. But, you know, you're still trying to sell wine. You're trying to stock your fridge so you can eat. And so that's what we were doing. So I would just advise for new startups just to be patient, you know, work on your reputation, work on your relationships with your customers. And through networking and through people finding you, you'll be able to pick and choose um, who you work with. So, you know, we made a few of those mistakes. And then also, you know, all the get rich quick schemes that are out there, you start with a, a small producer and they get, you know, big and eventually they outgrow you and then they go on to a bigger company. And that's just the nature of the beast. So I mean, we definitely made money working with larger producers as we built them up. But, you know, it's kind of a tough um, pill to swallow when you build them up and then they they need to be in Walmart and Target and end caps and things like that. And that's just not what we're really about. And so it happens. I mean, brand building is hard. Brands are built by the glass at a top restaurant and um, on the shelf in a small store and they end up dying on the end cap at Target. And so there's a life cycle for brands. We're working with so-called brands less and less and with authentic estate-driven producers more and more because there is not a shelf life on an estate. There's not a shelf life on a place or a family business. But on, um, you know, let's ride the trend of Pinot Noir, let's ride the trend of Malbec, or we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, those are brands that sell, but eventually they expire. How do you say to a buyer in a restaurant maybe, we're relevant to you. I mean, it seems like a market where someone could 
even though you have good things, easily purchase other wines from other people. What is it that you say, hey, you should really be paying attention to what we're doing? There's no doubt that um, nobody needs to do business with us. And I think that a lot of distributors make the mistake that they think that a customer can't live without. And when that happens, they usually offer bad service. So what I will say to a customer or what I say to the sales team is that the culture that we're creating here is one of service and it's a team service. So it's our job to make uh, money for our customers. That's our job. And how do we do that? By offering great service, by having a well-curated portfolio that is properly stored in a temperature control warehouse that is delivered on time, invoiced properly, no mistakes. If there is a mistake, we own up to it. We fix it right away. Everything else is just lip service. You can have a great wine in your bag, but if you don't have the service to back it up, uh, eventually you're going to be exposed and busy customers are going to want to do business with distributors that can offer the service. There's customers that, you know, they're all about the deal. There's customers that are all about the relationship or I like, you know, Susie, she's a great sales rep. She doesn't really have that good of a portfolio, but she shows up every day and she follows up and I really, really like her. Um, so it's a combination of having great service and then also a great portfolio that I think makes us strong. So to answer your question in a really long, drawn-out way, nobody needs to do business with us. But when we are presenting to do business, we talk about our high standards of service. And we talk about the strengths that we have as a company, that we are local, we are independent, we have a top portfolio, we have our own drivers, they make the deliveries, we have a website, we have all this content that you can use for waitstaff trainings and for also your retail. We have a team of people, almost swarm service in a restaurant to support you. And that, uh, customers seem to respond to that. So the value add is in the curation of the portfolio and the service to the customer of the restaurant rather than the rock bottom price. Absolutely. Um, we're interested in in building long-term, real, sustainable relationships. Now we have customers that, you know, they, they just want wines that get 95 points and are 9.99 and taste like chocolate milk. And we do have customers that, you know, we need wine at this price and only this price. And so they're not, it's like they're, it's sworn to fun loyalty, none, you know, they just want, you know, to fill a list and we have those customers as well. And we sell to restaurants, independents, corporate, big box, you know, chef-driven, sommelier, master sommelier, you know, written wine list, et cetera. A majority of our customers, the real sustainable customers, are similar to us. They're small, they're local, they're independent, and they're about quality. And they want to put quality food on the plate. They don't want to skimp on um, their ingredients, and they don't want to skimp on what they um, – source for the wine list. And if it ever becomes a question of price or they only want to talk about the deal or, you know, whether or not there's Blackhawks tickets or anything else, the conversation's over for me. Uh, and I'm moving on to find the next customer. There's 20,000 liquor license in the state of Illinois. We do business on an annual basis with 2000. So I would like to go meet another 18,000 that actually want to do business with a like situated partner. The thing I've noticed about distribution in my career, which is a little over a decade and a half, is that it went from the guy selling the wine who looked older, different, maybe different set of values than the buyer, to 
buyers buying from guys that look like them had the same views, sometimes the same political views, sometimes the same views about food. Sometimes those are the same thing, political views and views about food, you know, dress the same way. Is that an evolution you've seen in Chicago too, where people seem to be more interested in buying from people that they resemble? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I do think that the wine and food community in general attracts a lot of the same people. It's definitely a small world. And it seems like it's an industry where it's all of the majors in college that you can't really get a job in. So all of the ologies, so the, um, you know, geography and the philosophy and, you know, archaeology and all of these majors sort of converge in the wine business because it definitely it definitely calls upon all of those things. I mean, wine is it has such a wonderful history in terms of being made by people from a place and the history and the culture that people that are really, really into it. I think the successful people in our industry could all make more money doing something else. I think that they're in it because they love it. And the reason that they love it, it's this inexplicable thing that draws everyone together. So to your point, I agree. I think that, you know, once a salesperson or an owner of a company meets another owner or a buyer, it's almost like um, a love at first sight situation where it's like, wow, I really like that person. She's great. She has an amazing palette. And then the connection starts there. So yeah, there definitely is more and more people that are highly educated, well-traveled, hard workers that want to work in our business, our community because of uh, you know the lifestyle. But I think there also is money to be made. I think that the top operators in any sector of the business do really, really well, whether it's a um, owner of a restaurant group, whether it's a sommelier or, or beverage consultant, whether it's an importer distributor, top retailer. Um, I think that there is money to be made, but I think that's a, that, that's a second choice by the people that are really good in this business. I think that that comes later because they're good and it's not a situation where I'm doing this because I want to make a lot of money. So you've been in distribution since the early 90s in the same city. Has the buyer here changed? I think so. I think the buyer has become smarter, um, more savvy, um, also more experimental, more progressive. So in restaurants, we're starting to see wine lists that are promoting categories that I definitely didn't see 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, when you when you see an orange wine section of a wine list or you see we're going to do for the summer 10 rosés by the glass or um, here's my Northwest Piedmont section of the list. It just makes me so happy because this community is really starting to you know teach each other and mentor each other. And the wine lists and the beverage programs are getting better. The retail selections or the niche retailers are getting more focused and offering more authentic wine and the brands or, you know, the wines that are basically, um, I just want to get drunk and I don't care what it tastes like. Those are really finding their ways in, into the bigger stores and, and the um, convenience stores and, and big box, which is not really part of our mix anyway. So one of the things that surprised me about your book is not just the number of SKUs, line item estates that you represent from Spain, but also from Italy. It's quite big is that a reflection of the restaurant market in chicago that there's interest in italian wine or is that a reflection of what you're interested in or why is it that you know italy represents such a big part of your book if not your sales 
Well, I think the main reason is that my partner and I love the wines from Italy. We always have. And we've traveled there together and I, I, I get a chance to travel there a little bit more than he does. Um, you know, he focuses mostly on the operations and I focus on the sales and marketing, but of all the, the wine regions from around the world, Mark and I are, are, are very enthusiastic uh, about Italy. And, you know, for me, it was my, my, my first and, and only love in wine. Um, we sell wines from around the world. I love French wine, German wine. I mean, basically any major wine producing region on the planet, let's go visit tomorrow. I mean, let's get on the plane and check it out. But for Italy, it's just really, really special to me. And I always said that the next big thing is the old thing that people didn't know about, and that's Italy. And it was so underrepresented in the marketplace. And it was such an afterthought in the douchey steakhouse or in the you know, the, the retail store set where it's like, here's the Chianti and everything else. And what was happening when we started to get into Italian wine two years into cream is we were having a lot of success selling autochthonous, indigenous, authentic Italian wine to non-Italian restaurants. And that was where we had a lot of success because as many Italian, as, as many Italian restaurants as there are in Chicago, the amount of good ones, you could probably count on two hands, but that's changing. There's a lot of new additions to the scene and that's a food trend that I hope doesn't become a trend, that it stays, and that the restaurants that are opening up are focused Italian restaurants, focused concepts that are definitely wanting to, you know, to have a wine list that is regional. And so we're definitely primed in that position. But for me, uh, you know, I have, you know, there's two great friends that I have in, in, in the wine business that, that I've met in my career. One is Doug Polaner in New York and the other is Oliver McCrum in San Francisco. And those are two good Italian portfolios. I would say that Planner Selections is the best Piedmont portfolio on the planet. If there's a better one out there, I, I'd like to see it. And Not bad in Tuscany either. Exactly. And also Oliver has been a great friend. I'm so jealous of his business and I always joke to, to Mark that if we had to do it all over again, we'd go the way of Oliver because here's a guy that has, is focusing exclusively on Italian wine. He has a real thoughtful regional portfolio uh, of Italian wine, and he's not so much into the trends on whether or not something is natural or whether or not it's biodynamically farmed and certified. He's, and neither is Doug. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, they're not SO2 Nazis or anything like that. They just happen to have really, really delicious wine. And those two have been extremely helpful in mentoring me, especially when we travel to Italy, introductions to producers for an opportunity for direct import. And in basically just talking about wine, talking about Italy as a culture and visiting there on a regular basis. And so, you know, that ha has been just an amazing experience. But what about that natural wine thing? Because you represent Zev, you know, Rovine, uh, you have his selections. Those are pretty, um, I don't know, off to one side, you know, they, they make a statement in terms mm -hmm. of natural. What do you find works in the market? When you introduce those wines to people, what do you say? Well, in the beginning, you know, we were definitely flying and promoting the viticulture. And to some extent, if you go onto our website, you can see that we actually have a viticulture section and we list, you know, how the farming is, whether it's organic, whether it's biodynamic, are they, quote, practicing, who's certified and who isn't. And we also had sustainable on there, which I've since removed because I think sustainable as a category is just so overused. It's almost like saying, you know, this seven up with sugar is a natural product. But we, you know, we definitely 
because of the interest in the market and because of the expense and the thoughtfulness of our producers, we definitely promote the viticulture. But, you know, since we started working with Zev, it became obvious to me that it's more than just how the wine is grown, it's how it's made. And so you can have a biodynamically certified wine and then they fuck it up in the cellar and they tweak it and they and they basically, you know, don't use native yeast or they, you know, over oak it or they do all these different things. And what's happening is the wine is actually not 100 percent grapes. Who knows what's in there? And so Zeb has been really influential in opening my eyes to that. As far as the promotion of whether or not something is natural, um, that definitely is a polarizing lightning rod controversial issue. And for me. It's not really a question on whether or not something is is natural. It's a question of whether or not something is delicious. And it just so happens with my palate where I'm at, where I'm at with my evolution is I tend to like the wines that are low SO2. I tend to like the wines that have a little bit of VA, a little bit of verticality to them. I like the wines that are farm naturally because it's what I believe in. And I would rather, you know, want to taste something that has flaws and is basically alive and active, you know, like a, a great Frank Cornelison wine or a Jean-Pierre Robineau wine than to taste something that's textbook and beat down and, and, and dead or like a zombie. So, I mean, we have zombie wines, we sell Madeira, you know, we work with, with rare wine company. That's a wine where, you know, basically having the life taken out of it makes sense but to have something from california or something from spain or france and to have the life or the energy taken out of the wine by how it's manipulated i I think is wrong so how we sell the wines we basically taste the wines with the customer and it's kind of like the taste test do you like it or not if you don't like it that's cool let's move on to something else if you like it and you want to learn more and it just so happens to come out that it is demeter certified that they use low or no sulfur that the alcohol is 11.5 instead of 16.8 you know that's really a secondary thing and that seems to work the best because to go after the naturalistas there's five accounts in the city of chicago that are branding themselves as such The rest are just great wine accounts that want to sell delicious wine. And we sell the heck out of Zeb's wines to all segments of the marketplace. And I think one of the reasons we do that is we don't fly the natural flag. Are there some venues where it just works better, however, with the food or with the style service? I think so. I think so. um, We've had success selling Zeb's portfolio, for example, because to your point, I think he is the most extreme. I think if you have Kermit Lynch on one side and you have Dresner on the other, we work with Rosenthal. Rosenthal is sort of in the middle and can definitely appeal to both camps, whether it's the classically guild trained sommelier or whether it's, you know, the hipster that wants to do a jump the shark beverage program. We can do both. Zev, I think, is even past Dresner in terms of, of the extreme. I think and definitely that's true. And I that's think even Zev would say that. And that's what I dig about him, and that's what I love. He's fearless, and I respect that. And one of my wine epiphany moments was with him and Jean-Marc Brignot two years ago. What did that look like? Um, that was crazy. So we actually went – I went to the Dive with Zev, and we toured. We stayed with Laurent Bonnois at his place in Restignier, and we went to visit a bunch of different producers, including Jean-Pierre Robineau. And we went to this abandoned – chateau or domain or whatever you want to call it in the Jura. We got there at about 1130 at night and it was Jean-Marc Brignot, his girlfriend, which I think may be his wife now, their baby 
and two other people that we were traveling with and we had dinner and it was basically his last meal in France before he moved away to Japan. He was basically dropping the mic, getting out and saying, I'm going to go make fish in this surfing town in Japan and this is it. And he opened up a lot of the wines that he couldn't take with him. And so some of the greatest Brignot wines that have ever been made were in that room. And it was a tasting where you didn't notice the fruit, you didn't notice the alcohol, you didn't notice. It was almost like a sake tasting where you're tasting Daiginjo sake. And it's basically the absence of something makes it great. And for me, that was just an epiphany. We There were gigantic spiders on the walls. It, the place was like should have been condemned. But we ate and drank until about two in the morning. And just to talk to Jean-Marc and to hear his stories and his experiences, for me, it was just like... It, I wanted to, I always joke, say now it's time for me to call my high school guidance counselor and, and tell her that I made the right decision. It's just like, that was the moment. It's like, I love what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. That was, that was an experience. But back to, back to what you were saying about, you know, the accounts that make sense for, for natural wine. And we have a lot of success with Zeb's portfolio with a, with restaurants that are doing a pairing menu and I don't want to say m the molecular gastronomy, even though, you know, a lot of people think that Chicago is sort of the United States kind of center of that. I mean, you can talk about El Bui and Noma and everything else. But, you know, when you have restaurants like Charlie Trotter's and Moto, and then you have Alinea and Next, there definitely is a type of cuisine that's going on that's extreme. And when you have a situation where there's extreme cuisine, where it's the deconstruction of something or the interpretation of something, sometimes the classic wine pairing doesn't work. And when, and what is needed is an exaggeration of the exaggeration, if that makes sense. So umami is kind of the cliched thing to say, but it actually works. So with a deconstruction or a molecular environment, um, sake is a great way to reset the palate in between extreme courses the umami that exists in biological sherry, for example, is a great way to basically sustain the menu. I traveled to Spain with a dear friend of mine, Linda Villalago. We went to El Boyi. The deal was um, she gets the reservation and, and, and I pay and I gladly did it. And we met there. We, we did a Spanish trip around it and we're sitting down at El Boyi and Freddie, the Psalm comes over and says, okay, you know, let's talk wine and he said here's the deal this is one of the best wine lists in all of europe but i highly recommend that you do um champagne and sherry and we have a great list and so i said take us away so in selling these wines the so-called umami wines sake sherry grower champagne especially like a high chalk situation also natural wine and i think that well-made natural wine that has the positive va that pop that verticality that freshness pairs amazing with deconstructed food also raw farm to table food or raw food in general and so those are the types of accounts that have really embraced natural wine and not being sold as natural wine or this doesn't have any so2 or the said five parts of so2 at bottling just this is a delicious wine and they tend to gravitate towards those what about some of the other visits that you've been on i mean what's it like meeting robinot so jean pierre is is, is another uh, one of these polarizing figures. I mean, Zev has an incredible portfolio and he has Frank Cornelissen and um, JP in one portfolio. And those guys actually are friends. They always host a post favorita, Vin Nature, uh, Vin Italy, 
uh, event at Itili in San Bonifacio, the natural pizza place where everything's out of Jeroboam. And it's basically they invite all their friends and these guys travel together and they're friends. So for I was very fortunate to be able to visit Frank post Italy this year in Sicily. That was an amazing experience. But two years prior, Zev took us to taste with uh, Jean-Pierre in uh, Jeanier. He, he's basically a Vin de France producer. His winery is in Jeanier, just as it's the, the other Loire River, the north. And we pulled up. I heard all these stories. And we pulled up, and it was a dump. It was a junkyard, essentially. I mean, I, I joke now. I said it's Sanford and Son meets the Shire from Lord of the Rings. And we go to this place, and we go into the caves, and we taste. It was the most filthy, disgusting cellar. Should have been condemned. If anyone, uh, any consumer that doesn't that isn't familiar with this genre of wine would visit it, they would probably, you know, call the health department or something. There were growing mushrooms on the barrels he had no idea what we were tasting he had no idea the numbers you know people are asking like what's the alcohol what's the number what's the ph and he said i don't pay attention to numbers because if you know what the numbers are then you have something to fear this is a guy that was basically i'm putting it all out there i'm a pet nap producer i do a pinot denis and and this is it and we tasted through at least 30 barrels and uh it was for me one of these other moments where it's like i love what i do no one in the world is doing this. I feel really blessed and honored to be here. Um, thank you so much, Zev. Thank you, Jean-Pierre, for having this moment. And I just it, it was just another level of my education about wine. We go back to the house. We have lunch. His wife basically picked the vegetables out of the garden that day. I'm sitting next to Justin Cherno, who you may know. He works with Zev. And Justin is saying, I'm having an overdose of vitamins. There's so much vitamins in this food that I'm eating right now. My body is like reacting to it. And you could feel your whole body. It was almost like an MSG high when you leave a Chinese restaurant. It was like a vitamin natural high from this food. And so that whole experience was amazing. Uh, it was just fantastic. Recently in this year, you started working with Neil Rosenthal and his portfolio. How did that come about and what's it been like so far? I had been talking with Neil um, six months prior. Um, he was unhappy with his uh, with with his representation, longtime representation, and he had heard some things about cream. And so we basically every three weeks we would call and we would talk about the state of Chicago and what he liked, what he didn't like, and everything else. And at the time, it was the year where I basically said to my partner, "I'm not adding any new wines. Our direct import Italian portfolio has quadrupled." We've added all of these items. It's all this content. The marketing department can't keep up. The salespeople can't keep up. I'm not going to add anything. And then when Neil called, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, take that back. <laughs> you know that last email I sent? <laughs> Delete that. Exactly. So I said to Mark, I go, this is, this is what we're looking for. Because while we do work with national importers, and we are an importer ourselves for the state of Illinois, this is a rare situation where Neil is actually a true importer. He has a warehouse and he brings in the product to New York and he forbids his distribution partners from picking up Acceler. You know, you turn that bottle around and it is a seven paragraph Neil Rosenthal advertisement, but you know, he's doing most of the heavy lifting and he deserves it. And so I thought, we're a little bit weak in Burgundy. We have some great Burgundy selections from Quick our way wine to company. change that. Exactly. So instant game changer. And I pretty am, good Italian too. I'm a huge fan of his Italian portfolio. Me too. 
Amazing. So it's been great. John Payne is the regional uh, based out of Austin, and he's been um, exceptional to work with. Jeremy Sells is 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 um, a national guy based out of New York. And we made the decision that we were going to break it and build it again, and it was going to require patience and persistence. And so we introduced wines that were working before. And for some reason, the previous distributor had, you know, different points of, of distribution that didn't make sense. And so we basically said, no, we're going to open this wine up to be, be sold to everybody. These exclusives are, are ending. This wine doesn't need to be in this big box store. Let's open it up. Let's free the grapes. And so in waves, we've introduced the portfolio. I mean, he must have 500 plus items. Right now, we currently have 100 and he's already catapulted. He's in our top 10 supplier and um, the year is half over. So I anticipate this relationship going forward in a very positive way. And I anticipate him being one of our largest suppliers by, by the end of next year. So incredible portfolio, really, really extensive. We have a core set of items that we sell. We'll special order anything for any of our customers, especially of two years of it being with a previous distributor. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, skeletons in the closet that we're discovering, and that's fine. So you want some Bea, you want this particular cuvee of Capilano, that's fine. We can bring it in. And it's been a great success. So like I said before, I think in terms of a true importer, you know, an iconic uh, importer. He sort of straddles, uh, he's sort of in between Kermit on one side and Dresner on the other. And we've had a lot of success in selling Neil's wines, which the market is extremely excited that we're, that we're representing. We've had a lot of success selling Neil's wines to, you know, the classic, uh, sommelier restaurant. And then also, um, the hipster, um, you know, 10 wines on a wine list place. And then also a lot of retail. I'm surprised at how much retail presence there is for, for those wines. It's been a great start. What was it like discussing the plans with Neil? I mean, what's it like having a negotiation with Neil? I thought he was great. I've heard all these stories. I mean, obviously, I saw Mondomino and I listened to your podcast, and um, I've started his book. One of uh, one of my salespeople read his book and and you know turned turned me on to it. Um, I heard all of these stories, you know, some good and some bad on how how difficult Neil was to deal with. And you know, granted, we're still in the honeymoon phase. But I really liked him instantly. I like his philosophy. Um, there's no bullshit, and this is what he wants to do. And he really just wanted a partner in the market that was extremely enthusiastic about selling his portfolio. You know, he doesn't want to be the biggest in uh, in the portfolio. He wants basically an engaged sales team that can intelligently sell um, his product, can retell the story, which is essentially what distribution is. I mean, we're the framework. We're we, we don't want to star in the movie. We, we don't want to direct the movie. We're fine being the producers. We're the framework of the industry. And I think a lot of distributors make that mistake where they want to star in the movie. They want to create their own brands and they want to create this and they name their distribution company after themselves. And then they end up selling it to Southern, which is kind of weird. So it's like, we're basically, it's an old trade it's distribution and import. And we're the framework we're behind the scenes, happily behind the scenes. And we move the market in terms of what consumers are drinking in the state of Illinois. But what about those direct import relationships? How did those get going and what are they like to facilitate? It's been a great process putting together the direct import book. So just, just to be clear, we are an importer distributor. I don't want to be a national importer. I don't want to be a regional importer. Mark and I want Cream to be an Illinois importer distributor. 
And we also don't want our direct imports to be a majority of our business. They need to be complementary to the existing national import relationships that we already have. You know, we could easily just say, let's get rid of all the national importers and we're going to go all direct. You know, it's a, you know, the, the profit is higher. The, the grower gets to sell it to us at a higher price. So they win. It's still lower on the shelf. It's a win, win, win. But for us, there needs to be a balance. And the direct import portfolio came about because we wanted to build our Italian portfolio. And we had a really, really hard time finding a national importer of Italian wine that would fit. We worked with one in the past. They changed their direction and philosophy, and we parted company, and we were out of the category for a while. And we kept on waiting for the next Italian importer to come along. And so finally we said, why don't we do it ourselves? So for our direct imports, I would say 85% of our Italian wine is direct. In France, it's probably 50%. And in Spain, it's 10%. So we're obviously aligning ourselves with specialists when it comes to to importing. We're working with Rosenthal, Ole Imports, Valkyrie Selections, Rare Wine Company, Rudy Vist, et cetera. But for Italy, it just made more sense. It was our passion play. It's um, an area that we love to visit on a regular basis. It was a need. There wasn't an all-encompassing regional um, importer, and so we decided to do it ourselves. So just to be clear, we are an importer, but we also work with national importers as a distribution company. That will always be cream. We're not going to change that. But in Italy, it's something that we're going to focus on and do that. So those relationships started. It's a combination of there are some great wineries that – want to leave a national importer you know they don't want to be in 25 markets and not get all the information and not have a relationship with accounts they want to be in five and they want to know the importer and know the customers and so we've picked up some producers that way also from traveling extensively to italy a couple times a year you meet people and there's networking you go to the fairs whether it's in italy or some of the natural wine fairs like chirea or favorita or um, right around the div or a renaissance uh, salon you meet people and you know, I just have to really step back and say, okay, come on now, Andy, calm down, take it easy, take a deep breath, you know, kick the tires a little bit. And, you know, back in the day, I was just buying everything I could get my hands on. And so that's just a learning curve that I've had. So we, we're now at the point right now where, um, you know, our import portfolio, it's a combination of great referrals and, and, and relationships from friends like Doug Palaner or Oliver McCrum. It's also working with national importers where one of these growers says, I'm going to leave. Would you like to still represent us? And we say, of course. And it's also situations of just discovering things. And for me, that's the funnest part is to discover something. I mean, I walked into, um, I walked into Favorita two years ago and I'm, I'm, I'm Doug Planners walking out with Morgan rich. And he says, um, you got to go taste Lahert. And so I just show up, Jason Carlin from Spiaggio, we walk in, we go right to see Aurelian at Lahert, we hit it off, and then we're direct importing them. I mean, that's, that's, that's some, sometimes that's how it works. You get lucky, you're in the right place at the right time. So grower champagne is something that we're going to be expanding. We have a great grower book, but I think that Chicago's a couple years behind New York in terms of the, the, the interest and the enthusiasm in, in grower champagne. But I think that that's a, you know, if any wine region is branded, I would say it's champagne. And I think that the movement is going away from the marks and more towards growers. And it's a very dynamic 
region in terms of, you know, how they're making wine. We work with Cedric Bouchard. We work with Lahert. You know, these are guys that are just really pushing the envelope. And so that's another area that we'd like to expand on and preferably direct. Are there regions of the world where people want to know more about where their wine is selling and how and what's going on and less? I mean, are there places where people just give you the wine and say, it's your problem? And are there general regions where people really want to know, hey, what's the depletion on that place? Is that restaurant buying or what? Absolutely. I think that France in general, I think they think I'm the customer. And so I have an easy button that I push and that immediately goes into, you know, a hundred points of distribution. So they basically view me as the customer and they could care less where the wine is sold. Italy, I think that we're at the point with our direct import portfolio where I'm just happy to be able to communicate with them. I'm taking Italian, I'm starting to read, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously using Google Translate and everything else, but we have some producers where they're just happy if we can actually coordinate a pickup of a PO. I think where the micromanaging happens is when brokers and agents are involved. And also it definitely happens for American wine distribution. Which you said is a big part of your sales. Exactly. So half of our sales is, is domestic and, you know, California is probably, I don't know, three fourths of that. And I think that with a lot of these California wineries, which, you know, they have the land debt, they have the investment, they have the price tag, they have everything else. They definitely want to know where the wine is sold because they have their own direct business. And so they want to protect their direct business, mailing lists or, you know, however, however they self-market. They don't want a wine selling for significantly lower than what their mailing list is. And they also don't want their wine sold to one customer. They want points of distribution or multiple relationships that are selling the account. And I respect that and I understand that. It's not as bad as it used to be. Prior to the economic crash, it was definitely micromanaging. And I think after after the, the crash, um, I think people are a little bit more tolerant on where their $100, $150, $200 bottles of wine are sold. Um, because after all, it is a business and they're going to have to um, sell the wine. We do as best we can to give fair balance of restaurant and retail. And we do the best we can as far as you know, selling the wine for a fair price. And if one retailer wants to work on a lower margin, there's really nothing I can do about it. I mean, Illinois is a non-price posting state. And that's one of the challenges that Cream has to deal with. What does that mean in reality for you? Well, the reality is that I can sell a wine for any price that I want. The law reads that you have to sell it to a like-situated competitor for the same price. What we typically do, I feel that price posting is coming. I think that the state's bankrupt, and I think that they're gonna, they want to write parking tickets, and I think they're going to go the same route as New York did and offer a level playing field and go um, Which similar. is a place where before the month starts, you have to say what the price is, and you have to offer that same price to everybody. Exactly. And um, there are people that think that that's never going to happen because there's two big liquor companies that are dominating, and it's based on volume, and so they're not going to get the volume if, if, if there's price posting. If there is price posting, I anticipate that Cream will grow its business by 20% because customers will, if they're not getting a better price, they'll want to do business with the companies that offer the best service. So since we started, we've been transparent in our pricing. We have a pricing structure and it's published and this is the price. And we're competing with other companies that are not necessarily offering that price. And for me, it's just a question of, why would I undercut 
a long time existing customer to get a sale from a douchey account that's going to sell the list to a big liquor company two weeks later. For me, that's not real and sustainable business. You think that lists are still bought and sold to distributors? I am pretty sure that they are, allegedly. What is the playing field like? Is it level? I think that for the most part, there's a majority of customers and distributors that do good business. They do it the right way, the ethical way, and they basically um, sell wine for a fair price and they make it you know, a level playing field for all. There's outliers for sure because of the non-price posting and because of the lax liquor commission you know, looking the other way, and that happens. But I think that happens in any business, whether it's the music business or whether it's you know Hollywood or whether it's this a car. This is alcohol car. and this is Capone City. So what does that mean? Well, I think that um, I, I think that we'll see a more level playing field in the coming years. I, th- I, I think um, there's going to be an end to you know a great Chicago iconic landmark restaurant that is basically choosing their beverages based on how much money they can get out of the supplier. I think that those days are coming to an end. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it still exists. And it's kind of like the dirty little secret. It's like people come to Chicago and they say, wow, it's so clean. I can't imagine this The city is just so clean. It's so beautiful. Why is it so clean? And I say, well, because it's dirty. So there are certain systems in place that just work um, we're not supposed to talk about it. I don't care who I talk to about it. It doesn't really matter. You've got bigger liquor companies that have a lot of product to sell. Their business is down and they need to make the product go away. And how do they do it? They buy the business or they offer lower prices, which is great for the consumer. The consumer gets it at a great price and the restaurant gets it at a great price and they maximize their gross profit and everything else. But it's not fair to those customers that don't ask for the better price and i feel it's unfair that's why i can't do it i can't sell something for a lower price to a long time you know i i can't overcharge a long time partner and under and basically undercharge someone that's just asking for the price to get the deal and uh you know maybe i'm in the minority but did you see government step in change retail in the case of say sam's a little bit a little bit. I really think that there's so because the taxes are somewhat low here. I think that it's going to be it's going to take a while before it changes. But you'll see the occasional ticket or parking ticket or slap on the wrist for you know a distributor sending in free product or some sort of like you know whatever bullshit rebates that they do or things like that. But I think that there's so much volume that's going on is that. In order for them to police it, they're going to have to field, um, they're going to have to have people out there to basically go and investigate. They don't have the budget to do that. And so if the volume's coming in and the revenue's coming in, you know, they don't want to upset that. So we'll see what happens. What about the buyer at the restaurant level? You talked about the difference between the hipster and the court sommelier. I mean, what does that look like on the sales side when you're dealing with them? I mean, what are their interests and how does that play out for you? Well, what we do, I mean, we have sales territories and for the most part, they're geographic, but, you know, relationship is going to trump geography. I mean, there has to be the right fit. And, you know, we have an incredible team. So my partner, Mark and I, there's 15 people on the sales and marketing team and we have 15 people on the operation side, warehouse delivery, et cetera. And we're going into our 13th year and we've never had a better team. We've never been stronger. The sales team is 
a bunch of different personalities and not every personality gels. So you do run into a situation where a buyer, for whatever reason, our sales rep isn't selling that buyer as much as we feel they could. And then once you sort of look at the business and see what your competitors are doing and ask the question, then it seems like it's um, maybe not the right personality fit. And so, you, you know, sometimes you have to make a change and we do that, but you know, we can't match everyone perfectly. There are going to be situations where it doesn't need to be the right fit. It doesn't need to be, they don't need to be um, on a bowling team together. It's just, you know, it's business and it's sales and it works together. So, you know, I think sometimes you make the mistake of wanting your sales rep to look like your buyer. And sometimes when that happens, the sales actually go down because they're buddies and there's not that, Hey, are you going to place an order or, or, you know, did you, did, can I send you four cases call tomorrow? Bullshit. Exactly. So, um, it's really the, the sales manager's job and, and, and also, you know, my job overseeing, you know, that side of the business is to really take a look at, you know, accounts that are up and down and why, and there's always exceptions. It could be the account doesn't have any money. It could be, we are not in line with our business ethos. It could be personality conflict and you have to go in and look at it and say, okay, you know, maybe it's time for a change. What do the lists look like in Chicago? I think they're good. I think they're getting better. They're certainly a lot better than when I started in the business in the early 90s. What you're seeing now, depending on who the buyer is, is there's a great specialization of what's going on. The thing that kind of drives me crazy, but I understand from a marketing standpoint, is you don't see duplicate wines from the same producer. So if you have a really awesome restaurant that has you know 40 wines on the list, you're really only going to make one placement per producer. And I understand that. And there's been some marketing tweaks that brands have done where they come up with different branded wines so they can get three or four wines on a list, but it's the same producer. So it's kind of bullshit. But, you know, I understand why that doesn't happen. But for me, it's like, if you really like the wine, you can do a feature or you can do, you know, three or four from, from the same winery. I mean, there's a thing about terroir and trying different vineyards from the same guy and stuff like that, too, right? Yeah, exactly. But um, we're seeing the price points are definitely coming back. After 2008, um, the wine list got dumbed down. Um, what had happened, I'm sure it was the same way uh, you know, around the country. I think Chicago was hit less by the, the recession than other markets. But what happens is the, the, the three-star restaurant, high food, you know, white tablecloth restaurant goes out of business. And then a tavern or a so-called gastropub opens up. And what do they do? They upgrade the spirits program and they upgrade the beer program and they dumbed down the wine program. And so all of the wonderful wines were in that sweet spot of the wine list under, you know, let's say between $50 and $80, you know, great global values for wine by the bottle. Those are being replaced for, I need the cheapest possible Malbec, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc that I can get. And I'm going to overcharge buy the glass to make up for all of my lost sales. We're almost out of that now. We're, we're, price points have crept up. Sommeliers and beverage directors are now stretching the price points and stretching by the glass. And it still remains you know, a, a great value to have some of these wines by the glass from around the world. A, a real wine with, from a real place, an appellated wine, you know, we're starting to see more and more of those by the glass. Less California and less village wine, but more, um, as you say, terroir-specific wines. And depending on the restaurant, you know, there are some that, that, you know, God loves some of our um, sommeliers, the weirder, the better, or um, in, in the case of Italy that we talked about, instead of just the general, you know, Piedmont list where it's all Barolo, we're seeing regional Piedmont. We're seeing Northwest wines from Lasona, wines from Gamay, Gattanara. And for me, that's really, really interesting. 
so volcanic. You know, people are emphasizing Etna, they're emphasizing Campania, even, you know, the Canary Islands for crying out loud. It's like you're starting to see features on wine lists of, you know, specific terroir elevations, styles of wine or types of wine, like we had mentioned before, orange wine. And, and that's that's starting to come out. And and the lists are becoming more global. And so instead of having a list that's like a who's who of California and France, those are getting cut in half, thank God. And what's happening now is you're seeing an introduction of the best from another country that still is a value when compared to California and Bordeaux. And so they're getting broader, better prices, and uh, more creative by the glass. So if you're not selling multiple wines from the same producer onto a list and you only have that one slot, does that mean that you need to make a point of keeping that slot and like selling the next vintage of that wine to that same account? Yeah, you try. I, I have to remind my my um, sales team and, and management team that, that it, to remind their customers that it is an agricultural product and it does run out. And there is a chance that we're not going to be able to keep it year round. We have the so-called core items that roll vintages and that for the most part can be a set it and forget it situation. But a majority of the wines that we sell, probably three-fourths, are winery allocated, are limited, and that's what makes them so wonderful. There's a reason why there's not a lot of it. You know, one, the quality is good, and two, everyone else around the world wants it. So here's your allocation, and let's divvy it up. And I want the sales team, and I want customers to feature that and pour it by the glass, but it is going to run out. And we run out because of logistics snafus and, you know, cash flow crunches and everything else that's going on. I mean, that just happens. So what I say to customers is I can't guarantee that this isn't going to run out, but I can guarantee that if it does run out, I'm explain to you why, and I'm going to, you know, propose an alternative and make you right by it. The real sustainable customers, the partners to us get it and are happy with a bridge wine or they're happy with a replacement wine. The ones that don't get it and drop it because we're temporarily out of stock. I understand why they do it. It's business, but they're not really real and sustainable accounts. So we really have to balance that. We're a service company. We fly our flag that we're all about service, but I'm also not going to lie to people and say, this is, you know, this is a contract. I'm selling you a magazine subscription and it's never going to run out. I mean, we're dealing with an agricultural product. So it's hard when you have a placement going for a sales rep to lose it. And it's really, really defines you. Crisis is what defines you, how you react to the crisis. So we're really looking for, and we have a team of problem solvers that basically when something like that happens, they're a partner to the restaurant. They communicate well in advance that there's going to be an interruption. They propose something that's an alternative. And a lot of times what ends up happening is we get the replacement plus another extension because our competitors are doing the same thing, running out, and they're not communicating why they're running out. Andy Pates, he focuses on communication at Cream Wine in Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you, Levy. This was great. I just want to say that I'm a fan of your podcast. I know a lot of people that you've interviewed. I respect a lot of people that you interviewed. And for me, it's an honor to be here. And I'm, I'm really glad we spent some time together. I'm very thankful for your time. Andy Pates of Cream Wine. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.